1: ES Audio. Welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Culture Editor Nancy Durant.
0: And I'm Deputy Culture Editor Nick Clark.
1: Today we've got a special episode for you, basically because we were completely overexcited about the fact that we've got an extended interview with two legends of British stage and screen, Sir Ian McKellen and Roger Allen.
2: When these two guys kiss, there's a roar of approval, isn't there? There is, yes, it's lovely. Yeah. From a, a perfectly ordinary theatre audience, which makes me think that Theatre audiences are probably the best people in the world. They're on the whole socially liberal, aren't they? And and they're interested in people and interested in things that they don't know about. And uh, they convey their enjoyment.
0: They're here to talk about their two-man play, Frank and Percy, at the Other Palace in Victoria. So Ian McKellen, Roger Allen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, um, Thank you first very much, of all, Roger. Can we ask what's the play about?
3: Well, it's about two older men. Who meet while walking their dogs on Hampstead Heath, form a friendship from that, and also about the fact that they're quite lonely and looking for something in their life. And really, it's their story about how it's difficult to, at that stage in life, to form any kind of relationship really, but they do find love. And so it's rather hopeful and optimistic. And very funny.
1: What first attracted the two of you to, to the play? Was it written for you? Because it's got no, things it in marks. it. No, it was not.
2: Ben uh, Weatherill, from Leicester, the time that produced Joe Orton. Ben uh, had written a, a, a play that had gone down very well at the Bush, the tiny theatre in London, and then transferred to the National Theatre. And its leading character had Down syndrome, and so did the actor playing that. Oh, that oh.
1: was a Jellyfish? was right. Isn't it a fantastic play?
2: Then during... Uh, a lockdown with the virus Ben was out walking on his own with his dog and the man whirred away and perhaps he saw other dog walkers in the distance or indeed talk to them as, as dog walkers do. It's very easy to talk to someone with a dog in a way that you would never dream of talking to someone on their yeah. own, isn't it? I suppose if they had a cat you might... Strike up conversation. Certainly
1: if it was on a lead, yeah. (laughs) It
2: came out of uh, his own experience uh, of perhaps feeling more lonely than normal and uh, out of his uh, fertile imagination. And what attracted me to it was that when Sean Mathias, the director, sent it without comment... And uh, if you're me and you get something from Sean Mathias, you drop everything and, and read it because you'll be in trouble if you don't. <laughs> and I was reading this thing and <laughs> laughing out loud. which is not easy to do, uh, just words on a page, and then started to read it and, and laughed even more. And um, it was like reading an Alan Akebourne play or an Alan Bennett. I mean, there's something in common. There's, 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 there's an aptitude for hearing what is funny in in dialogue. And I just thought This is going to go down a treat with audiences, and so it's proved.
1: Yeah. What about you?
3: Well, about you? I, I read it, but Ian Ian was already doing it, so that was part of the attraction because we worked together quite some time ago now, actually.
0: This is in the pantomime. In the of Panto, yeah, which yeah. we
3: did.
2: But did, we did work together since that. Yes, pantomime. we did. Yes, can did. you remember? Yes, oh.
3: yes, I do. I'm not going to mention it.
2: He played Sherlock Holmes's doctor I did. in a very uh, witty film. Oh, yes. called Mr. Uh, Holmes. Yes, yes that's With right. Catty
1: Morahan. Yes, she was. Yeah.
2: Yes, she was. Yeah. Yes, she was. But you got to meet Laura Lindy, didn't I you? I did. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. <laughs> what was the question?
3: Uh, well,
1: the question was what what had attracted you to it? Well, was...
3: exactly the same things as Ian. And I hadn't done a play actually since I was doing another two-hander at the Bridge. Our run was closing. Mm. Uh, it, it, it was a very short run, played by Carol Churchill, called a number, and it closed literally the Saturday before lockdown. And this is the first play mm. I've done since then. Oh so wow! That's been the longest period in my life, really, wow. between doing plays. And so you got I,
2: you got a bit edgy, didn't you, about that? You you, you wondered if yes, it was going to be all right, but
3: in, <laughs> in the thinking about it, not in the doing of it, but in the sort of um, Yes, I got a little bit apprehensive because it's something that I've always thought you need to sort of keep doing to uh, keep the muscles working.
1: It's a play that kind of, it deals with, I was reading it this morning again, and it, it kind of deals, it deals with ageing and grief and death and living a good life. But are those things that kind of occupy you at all?
3: Yes. Yeah. Constantly, yes. No, really. I think because a, a, a number of people close to me have died fairly recently. My children, although they're young men, they still need us around as parents. And so I think about death and worry about it
0: all the time. In a play like this, does it allow you to sort of explore those? Because it certainly is a very tender look at yes, the ageing yes, process. Yes, yes, certainly and, you, you do feel it. And Ian, how, how about there is There is
2: death sort of hanging over this play, isn't it? I mean, um, Roger's character is, is, is a widower yeah. uh, and uh, not fairly recently. And um, there is a death in the play, as you know, as you've read it.
0: And there are health issues as well that we there won't spoil. but yeah. you know, so And
2: it's... Uh, I don't think a day goes by when I don't have a, quite a long period either talking about death with somebody my the same, same age as me or, or just thinking about it. You can't avoid it. I mean, nobody tells you when you're a kid that, uh, well, they tell you you're going to die, but they, they don't tell you that your friends are going to die.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, uh, no, no, not to make a cliché, so death is terribly permanent. But they're not coming back. And it's the memories, isn't it? And then you feel nostalgic and a bit bewildered and sad. So this play, you know, from the pen of a set 31-year-old, um, skips over these subjects uh, in, sometimes in depth and sometimes very lightly. Yeah. I think it's a very very cunning play. And um, the high spots, the, the, the dr- dr- dramatic moments, arrive just when you need them, you know. The moment when Roger Annam finally agrees to sing again in public for example <laughs> uh, is a high spot every night for me
0: is it yes it is particularly <laughs> as your character's meant to be drunk <laughs> <laughs> also I suppose it's about finding uh, the, the positive uh, of, of finding someone else at, at that age as well and just the, glor- the glorious nature of connecting with people at any stage of life absolutely the, and that it is possible mm. even though it might
3: be unexpected
2: yeah so although it's a, it's a gay love story, it could be said, or a gay rom-com, I think you've called it, yeah. um, I think it appeals to anybody. It seems to. And rather heartening uh, for someone who remembers the time when, funny to put this into words, it was illegal to be gay.
1: Sounds mad, doesn't it's, it? It's, it is incredible, oh, it isn't it? Mad. There was a time, yeah,
2: not that long ago, when it was illegal to be what you were born. But when when these two guys kiss, there's a roar of approval, isn't there? There is, Off, yes, it's lovely. Yeah. From a, a perfectly ordinary theatre audience, which makes me think that theatre audiences are probably the best people in the world. Really. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're on the whole socially liberal, aren't they? And, and they're interested in people and interested in things that they don't know about. And... Uh, they convey their
0: enjoyment. I think that's what's nice yes, about yeah. people laughing out loud. Well, we were thinking you don't see love stories with older people a lot on the stage. And often you don't see a lot of gay love stories of, with older people on stage. And um, I mean, this is very gentle in many ways, but also it feels sort of subversive as well. I thought perhaps some people would be uh, outraged.
1: Really?
2: Well, just remembering back to the time when even to mention the word Gay, queer or homosexual would put (laughs) people off the conversation. At least amongst theatre-goers, they they seem to have come through it and are now interested in all sorts of uh, human behaviour and if it's going well, they're happy to express their approval. I think also we have
3: moved on, thank God. Television has changed a great deal. Mm. Uh, You know, uh, you can switch... Switch on the television. You can see people appearing. You know, whatever you think about it, uh, appearing before uh, someone completely naked to be selected for, uh, you know, going out. I for wondered a if you are going to pick up naked
0: attraction. <laughs> I don't know why. I just well, it it, you know,
3: I mean, you know, both gay and straight naked yeah, attraction. I mean, it? I find it completely kind of there's no nudity in guard. this play. Is there? you are.
2: There's no nudity in this play. There's a
3: very very quick bit when you're looking in the other.
1: What oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you mean the, do- the dogs aren't there? I <laughs> suppose <laughs> they're not dressed.
0: <laughs> um, and it, it started in Theatre Royal Windsor, so you've oh, already yes. had the, a great audience response, and I just wondered if they were particular Or did audiences sort of write to you or talk to you afterwards? Were there responses that you particularly appreciated?
3: Well, generally, I mean, if people stayed behind at the stage door in Bath as well, where where we were after Windsor, um, it was to, you know, get autographs and pictures and stuff like that, but also just to say something really, really nice, how much they loved it. And um, quite a number of people came to see it again,
2: came to see it more than once, you know, which is... Just great. It was surprising how often people said, oh, you know that bit in the play, When? Exactly the same thing happened to me. And uh, Ben seems to be able to plug into uh, <laughs> normal, everyday humanity. And his ambition, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but uh, is to is to write for Coronation Street. And I just think he would do that brilliantly. Yes, he would. Because he not only got this... this uh, Ability with um, comic expression, but he really cares about people and tries to understand them, and uh, that's a good mix and would fit with that particular soap. And as a you, former star of Coronation I was say, Street, you've been on Coronation yourself. Street, haven't you? Yes, <laughs> one of the highlights of my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, let's go to a quick break.
2: I long to go to Dolly Wood, where everything you do is related to dolly and i'm sure she's terrific company
1: if you are yet to subscribe to this podcast what are you doing now would be the perfect opportunity
0: I'm Tim Minchin. I'm the composer lyricist of Groundhog Day the musical, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. So, with with a play like this, a two-hander, a lot of dialogue, obviously, there's not really anywhere to hide. How do you sort of approach a play like that? Is quite uh, uh, traumatic initially, or do you? Is it something that you really embrace? Well,
3: you have to embrace it. You know, I mean, that is the. the uh, there are no. It's very curious because, I mean, often. Uh, doing a play over a long period of time as I've done sometimes in the past. I've always enjoyed the repetition of uh, theatre because you get this bit at the end of your day that is hopefully supremely well organised and that you with practice get quite good at so there's a bit of the day that goes terribly smoothly you know but also in the theatre there's the off-stage life as well there's that bit where you always come off after that scene and someone's standing there and you say oh are you all right you know so there's a little backstage ritual as well and when the play finishes you will never have that again ever it's like the end of a kind of mini civilization It's strange. But in a two-hander, you don't really get the backstage life at all.
2: Of course, there are other characters in the lives of these two who we refer to. Yeah. And so when you're on stage, yes, the audience only see the two of you. But um, we've both imagined, haven't we, that there's, there's a wife here, there's a lover there, there's a... There's a pupil there, there's a student there, there's the boss here, there are lots of other characters oh, yes. in the play, are And the dogs, of course.
3: And the dogs, too.
1: of course. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, We've just read it. Yeah. Are there dogs? Well, we don't want to disappoint you, <laughs> No, there aren't. It would be a complete nightmare
3: <laughs> if they were actually real dogs. I,
2: I did Dance of Death, a Strindberg play. And at one point, the horrible man I was playing came in uh, uh, very delicately with a, a pussy cat that he was clearly going to kill right the minute he got off stage in fact when olivia played it I believe he I remember him throwing the cat across the stage oh out through a window his his widow d- says that never happened I saw it it's on it, it, anyway my cat <laughs> yeah far from wanting to be stroked didn't and jumped down and and then off the stage and into the tour and into tor- and across the ankles of the Front stores. <laughs> Great hilarity, had by all. To <laughs> <In a laughs> see it would
3: be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, quite a hard to come back from nightmare. that as an actor. <laughs> I
2: think we ended up by not having a real cat. Yes, <laughs> very Very wise. Because we wouldn't want to hurt it by restraining it.
1: It's a very human story, as you said. It sort of picks up on experience, I think, for everybody, that not just older men, older gay men. It relates to so many people, but it packs in a bunch of big themes as well that we're kind of grappling with. It at the does, moment. yes. Oh, climate change, state of the NHS, yeah. state of teaching, council culture. Did it spark a lot of discussions in the rehearsal room?
2: Oh, I can't We remember. probably <laughs> all rather agree on all those topics. Yeah, I can <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> <something that's done, laughs> to be said, perhaps. Yeah.
1: But council culture is such a, I mean, it's such a hackneyed phrase, isn't it? But is that yeah. something that troubles you? I mean, as, you know, it, people... People in the public eye, it, it's, you know, that kind of sudden ability for the internet to just, to, just yes. destroy everything for someone. I
2: think, on the whole, uh, speech should be free and freely available. Mm. And perhaps sometimes come with a, with a, with a health warning. You know, there are enough warnings now, and you go to a theatre there will be cigarette smoke, there will be loud bangs, there will be discussion of bereavement, but all sorts of things you're warned about. Mm. Why can't they, when, when someone when with strong points of you, that you don't agree with is coming to your university, why don't they just say outside, this person will be talking about these topics. Mm. And if you don't want to hear him or her talk, you don't go. So the, the audience can make up its own mind whether they want to hear something they disagree with or, or be persuaded in a particular direction. Mm. Wouldn't that be a sensible way out? There's a
1: conversation in the play, isn't there, about how public discourse, especially on, among younger people, doesn't kind of consider shades of grey. Does that mm. feel? Does that ring true to you, Roger? You've got yes, young I have children, yes. and no, I, remember- I mean
3: they're you know they're not like that at all. No. <laughs> so I, I mean I think it's often as much a projection by someone. I think I think the whole kind of area has been opened out mm. so that we can we can now all project the notion of cancel culture or conspiracy theories or whatever out there in a way that perhaps we didn't do before and I think you're right that the the internet has uh, and social media has kind of facilitated that uh, and that the problem is that a less a less complex
0: conversation takes place Mm -hmm. really and there's a moment Percy says something very interesting. I thought he says, "I'm because he he is sort of discussing uh, climate change in slightly different terms that many people, you know, are used to." I suppose. Yeah. Um, and but he says, "I'm not my work. We are more than our ideas," which I thought was really interesting. And it sort of speaks to that idea of separating the art from the artist, almost in a way. And I just wondered how you sort of dealt with that or how, thought about that in terms of. I I hadn't really. I hadn't thought of that idea,
2: and, and, and Ben Wetherill is very good to just sending a pea shooter at you. You
0: think, oh, what was that?
2: <laughs> well, that was a very good idea. Uh, and the good idea here is that when they're arguing ar- ar- about a topic, uh, Frank is getting upset because he doesn't like arguing with, with, with the man he, he likes uh, so much. And I, uh, the argu- ar- argumentative type, think, no, discussion is good. We might change our point of view. When we stop this conversation, this conversation can be dropped because we're now going to eat together or make love or, or something or go to the pictures. And we are not... I am not my work. I am not my work. We're more than our ideas. Well, of course we are. When you're looking at a sunset with your beloved, does it matter what your views are? climate change art. You see the beauty in the sunlight. Uh, so I think that must be another reason why people liked the play. They thought, "Oh, that's an idea, isn't it? Mm. I'm not sure I agree with that though. I
1: was gonna say, how, do you think it's possible to have a, a, a deep emotional connection that you can sustain with someone who has extremely opposing views on, on a hot button topic? Yes.
2: A Nazi, perhaps.
1: Yes. <laughs> sure, yeah. a Nazi. What do you um,
2: It's not I, impossible, no, you couldn't you? No, wish.
3: it's not impossible. I mean, no, it's not impossible. But if, if you were diametrically opposed about something about, uh, in which you had a deep, you know, uh,
2: moral and intellectual beliefs, I
3: think it would be very difficult.
2: Well, I, you must too have acted, which is a rather intimate thing to do, with people, acted with people whose views on many topics mm. you could not abide, but when you were acting with them, relish their ability and uh, yeah. their love of acting which you shared with them.
3: Yes, yeah, so there are, uh, it, it's not as though you disagreed on everything. But then, of course, as you have pointed out so wonderfully in the past, Ian, mm. acting, in a sense, <laughs> is pretending. Oh, my God. I'd forgotten I'd said that. that. Thank you. Yes, yes. It struck me when when
2: you said it. No, acting acting may be pretending, but but acting with with someone someone, is not pretending. You have to do that. Yeah. And you could do that with someone whose views you absolutely abhorred.
1: If you're a good actor.
2: Matter for discussion.
1: Indeed. Ian, the last time that you were at the Theatre Royal Windsor before this show, you played Hamlet... How do you look back on that production now? I mean, it's an extraordinary feat to play it three times anyway, and at 82. How, like... I don't know what I thought
2: I was doing. (laughs) Obeying orders, really. (laughs) Shaw shawmer again. again. (laughs) Would you like to play Hamlet? No. I think you should. All right. (laughs) Well, I did learn something about about acting, uh, particularly acting Shakespeare... That you can do worse than just say the lines.
1: They're pretty good, aren't they?
2: <laughs> They're not bad. <laughs> and over inflecting the lines, putting too much weight on them, and uh, pulling them in this direction or that, doesn't necessarily make them uh, clearer for the audience or, or more effective. Mm. And so I thought, well, I'm not cl- clearly, physically, I couldn't convince anybody that I was other than the age I am. But there might be something in the voice if I didn't bring the weight of my age to bear on it. And I'd felt that a little bit when I'm playing King Lear. Uh, there are a lot of contradictions in that play. Well, in Hamlet, too. Hamlet is always contradicting himself. Don't try and explain the contradictions. Just say the lines. Say what you feel in the moment with the appropriate expression, and uh, the audience would decide. That is what being an audience is.
1: Yeah, they're part there of it.
2: There are a thousand critics there yeah. making sense of it, if they can. You don't want to get in the way of them making sense of it and perhaps less acting is a rather good idea. And remember Sean said when we were starting rehearsing this play, just say the lines. Don't start acting it. Don't, don't, don't start elaborating it. And... Uh, it's rather like a good radio script. Uh, this play, you, you you could just say the lines and not worry about what you look like, it, and and the play would zing over with.
3: Because it, it, it's true. I mean, we are not only Hamlet and King Lear, but also I think we are as human beings contradictory. Mm. You know, uh, uh, I mean, talking about how in the theatre at the end of the day things are terribly well organised in a day, especially if you've got two toddlers. You know, it 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 can just feel. Like nothing can ever possibly go right again. It's what Whitman, isn't it? You say I contradict myself. Very well, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And uh, I, I think that's. I think that's true. I think it is, and it's difficult, especially if you're arguing about something, unless you're tremendously certain and tremendously articulate about what it is to hold on to what it is that you really believe. What do you really think and believe and feel about climate change, for instance? I feel completely terrified, really. And that's probably one of the things that makes me think about death as well. How will my children be when, when I'm not here, you know, and, and as if this thing does advance?
1: Holding back the tide. Yeah.
0: And uh, this is relevant, uh, and you'll you'll know why, if you've seen the play. What are your feelings on Dolly Parton?
3: I think she's great, although I know nothing about (laughs) her. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, whenever I've seen her acting in, uh, you know, the acting she's done or or heard her, I'm not a particular fan of that kind of music, but... um, as Percy says in the play, an admirable woman.
2: I agree with that, and (laughs) and I long to go to Dolly Wood, which is her uh, (laughs) open-air farrago in in her honor, uh, where everything you do is related to Dolly. (laughs) And I'm sure she's terrific company. I've seen her interviewed, and she talks such common sense, (laughs) and then writes these catchy tunes, uh, which can tug at your heartstrings one minute and, and, and make you want to shout out loud with joy the next. So, yes, as 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 my character says, uh, she's an admirable woman. She 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 uses her life to make things better. I mean, who can say that?
0: Let's go to the ads. Coming up.
2: They were singing the songs round round the pub. It was absolutely delightful. And I was joining in with Gusto, and then I said... Oh, I'd love to be in Labour's. And someone said, Well, why don't you come and do the matinee? I said, Absolutely, yes, but you must call Cameron McIntosh
0: and see if it's all right. We'll see you in just a sec.
2: I'm Millie Alcock, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
0: Roger, going back in time a little bit.
1: And back to the singing.
0: And back to singing. Uh, You originated Javert in the uh, London Les Miserables production. I just wondered how you look back on it now, because it wasn't the easiest start to life. It wasn't the record-breaking run that it is now, and film and all of that, and just what it was like at the time. Well, to begin with, it was very, very long. (laughs) (laughs) And
3: loud. Yes, and very loud, yes. (laughs) But by the time we got to the West End, it had... um, Been cut a bit, and it was always long because it's a you know a novel like a couple of bricks, yeah. But the thing is, is that it was always packed, yeah. It was absolutely packed at the Barbican, and when we moved into the West End, it was absolutely packed there. Princess Diana came to see it at the Barbican, which was a couple of million quid's worth of free publicity, (laughs) and then she came to see it again at the palace bringing Charles, which was another couple of million quids worth of free publicity, I guess. So that helped, Yeah. but I, I always, you know, looked out and it, it just, there, there wasn't an empty seat to see. I thought that's what the West End was like.
2: Alas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. would, uh, would either of you do another musical?
2: Well, I don't know if Roger knows, but I have subsequently subsequently appeared in Nemesis Miserables. Have you? In the cut-down version, which is now... Often tours the country. And oh, when, yeah. I, when I was in Newcastle three or four years ago doing a one-man show one night, uh, it was in the theatre where um, the rest of the week uh, Les Mis was, was playing. And I was drinking with, with members of the company after their show one night, and they were, they were singing their, the songs around round the pub. It was absolutely delightful. And I was joining in with Gusto, from what I could remember, <laughs> having seen Roger in the original production. And then I said, oh, I'd love to be in Les Mis. And someone said, well, why don't you come and do the matinee? <laughs> sure. So I said, absolutely, yes, but you must call Cameron McIntosh and see if it's all right. Cameron Macintosh is the producer. He came back immediately and said, exactly, but your, your character must have a name, and I want to announce it as the lights are going down that at this performance the part of will be played by Ian McCallum." <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, no, the point is, nobody knows I'm in this show apart from the, the actors and singers on stage. But I did give myself the name of um, Hugo Victor, which I nice. quite witty. Nice.
3: And I disguised <laughs> myself
2: with, with an eye patch <laughs> and, and a crutch. And uh, an old man's walk that I was very proud of. It was only when I got on stage on the barricades that I realised everybody else, of course, was a student. Everyone was meant to be young, and I was drawing attention to myself by playing a very, very old man. And the astonishing thing, Roger, we talk about microphones often because neither of them like having them, do we? Particularly not in plays. But uh, they all have microphones, so they don't have to sing very loud. And when you're on stage with them, you can't hear them singing. What you hear is something happening over there where the audience is, which is clearly loud, but on stage, mm. it's all rather calm. I find that
0: very odd. There's been an issue with um, audiences singing along with In the West oh, yes. End, in the sort of the bodyguard singing, the the big number. People are saying it's post-pandemic and unruly audiences. Have you come across unruly? Has it got worse post-pandemic? or? Maybe that's. A I haven't noticed, thing. but I, I mean, as I say, this is it's the first, first thing I've been in. Of
3: course, they've been appreciative, you know, and what what you hope for from an audience, they haven't. They haven't been drunk or not noticeably, anyway. <laughs> but I mean, I, it, it's difficult, that isn't it? I mean, in the eighteenth century, there was a riot in Covent Garden when they put the seat prices up, you know, a riot, and they had to bring them back down again. There's Been no
2: riots about. Seat's getting incredibly expensive. I've just done a pantomime. If the audience don't join in and sing along, you feel that that the evening's not going very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's only a matter of etiquette, isn't it, and and what those people uh, thought they were allowed to do. And uh, if they say, I've paid my money and I'll behave as I want, you know, it's difficult to argue with it. But on the whole, uh, the argument is, look, you're upsetting other people who want to enjoy it. But I don't think the person on stage should complain. Why not, though? Because it's we, a courtesy we, we, for you who's our, doing your our work. Our job is to serve. And, and oh, if the dish know. we provide is not <laughs> <laughs> approved of...
1: I hear a voice of dissent here. Well,
3: certainly, I was doing a play at the National called Rutherford and Son. And during a very quiet bit, someone's phone went off and went on and on and oh on God. and on it's and on. I heard later that it was at the bottom of. That this woman was desperately trying to get it from the bottom of a huge bag, but it just didn't stop. Oh God! So I didn't say anything. I just stopped and looked to where I thought it was coming from, until it went off. It was too distracting because one of the other things about you know when you're when you're on stage, especially if you're somewhere like the Globe, is that if anything else goes. On in the audience, it becomes part of the performance. Mm. I was once doing the Tempest at the Globe, and there was a, an American student standing in the in the yard. And, uh, during the, Prospero has this incredibly difficult speech talking about you know what happened 14 years ago and all that. It's really tortuous stuff. Mm. And um, when I first mentioned Prospero's wicked brother. Uh, Antonio this guy in the front big pint of beer and stuff like boo <laughs> like that so so I looked at him in you know for a bit in not in an approving way I can tell you <laughs> then then carried on as as best I could and then when I started telling Ariel off he said leave the poor spirit alone I mean it was it was, it was extraordinary. <laughs> no one else was doing anything like this. So he was disrupting the performance. Again, I didn't say anything, but... Um,
2: and what do you do when the aeroplanes go over and you can't be heard? Do you shout at them? No. Do you stare at them? Do you say no, no, no? I mean, no, you can If can't. you're in the Globe and an open air theatre and someone shouts out, come on, it's... it's like no, when deal, they isn't? shouted
3: out like that, Too personal. Standing in the
2: front. Too personal.
3: What they thought was is that they were at something
2: else. The very first entrance I made on stage in a meaningful way was was at university. And uh, I didn't know then I was going to become an actor, but I was in the company of people who were, and I I, I was very excited. And I stepped onto the stage, and before I opened my mouth, someone in the amateur dramatic club where we were doing the show said, Get him off! (laughs) <laughs> Apropos of nothing except my appearance, uh, oh, really? but since then audience you know have been very uh, friendly. Uh, yeah. Did you? Did,
3: did you? Real, was there no doubt that that was about you?
2: What? Oh, well, it coincided with my arrival on stage. Yes, I think.
3: Mm. Coincidental or causal? Was? Do you
0: think? <laughs> it was Derek Jacobi. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> And it didn't stop you becoming an actor, which is no. Or him, of course. Um,
1: You mentioned the ticket, uh, the prices, uh, people getting upset about them, and the tickets to your show actually seem very reasonable. You got twenty-five quid, premium eighty-five quid, but there has been a lot of debate recently about the cost of tickets in the West End and the risk of those eliminating, you know, a new generation of theatregoers. At what do you what do you think about that? Well,
3: in a sense, it doesn't matter what the top price is Mm. if there are people willing to pay. £200 to go and see something, in a sense, and they've got £200, fine. What matters to me is that no one should be excluded by price, really. So if the top price is £200, if there's a whole range of prices that goes down to a fiver or a tenner, which is one of the great things about the globe, then uh, uh, fine, okay. I discovered the theatre going to see um, uh, the National Theatre when they were at the Old Vic and Laurence Olivier was running it, and you could uh, sit on a padded bench in the gallery for 15 pence, which was the price of a tube fare. Now, that's a subsidised place, and the whole point was to subsidise a repertoire of work and to subsidise the ticket prices. So that's slightly different to the Mm -hmm. commercial theatre. If you exclude people in terms of price, it seems to me that ultimately it will fade away it's taking a long time about it because <laughs> but uh, ultimately it will mm. you
2: know I, I agree with all that but to put a contrary point of view everything is more expensive than it used to be yes and if you want to go and see elton john in a decent seat at the o2 you will pay as much money as was would get you into a play as on uh, four or five occasions i mean the sort of theatre we do is a lot cheaper than popular music concerts. And I think anyone coming to see this play in what is actually almost a private performance, 300 people, it's nothing. You are so privileged if you like acting, because you are so close. You're within touching distance. The You know, we, the air coming from our lungs will hit your eardrums. Isn't that worth paying for? If you don't have the money, of course it won't do. And there must be cheap seats. There must be. And then when you're in a very small theatre where it's all very special, of course you can't have too many cheap seats, otherwise you can't pay for the thing. But when it comes to subsidised theatre, the National Theatre, for example, the Royal Society, they must and do, I think, have cheap seats. Perhaps not as cheap as we would like. And you don't want to start saying, you, 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 you want a £3 ticket, could you afford more?
1: Mm.
2: Well, then you must pay more. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it?
1: It's hard to know whose responsibility it is when it comes to something like commercial theatre, isn't it? In West End, people get upset about West End prices, but West End prices are set by commercial organisations. It's yes. not subsidised. In today's market, they can make as much money as they want if there are people to if pay If I were the tickets. a producer, know, I'm,
2: I would have at least once a month and perhaps once a week a free performance or very very cheap one the court used to do that didn't uh, they? and i think people who could afford to pay top price would would would, would be shamed and, and not take advantage of this offer and leave it for the people who would need it certainly students going out to the theater on their own so they're not going to be paid for how on earth are they going to scrape together 70 or 80 quid regularly they're not
3: that was one of the g- great things about the globe because i mean I, I, I was rather anti the globe i have to say before i played full staff there i I'd, I'd seen a production early on that i really really hadn't liked i'd been at the rsc a lot the rsc was rather paranoid and about the globe <laughs> just before i did full stuff i went to see a trevor griffiths play about tom pain slightly messy sprawling play but it was packed. At the Globe. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I thought if you put this on in the Olivier, it would empty the place, you know. Mm. <laughs> but it was absolutely packed because the economics of it, talking to Dominic Dromgul afterwards, were that if you had either no set or very simple sets that could be taken down very, very quickly, and if you had two companies you could do two performances a day. So you could do 14 performances a week. But of course, what changes the demographic of the globe is that 700 seats out of, what, 1,500 were a fiver. So that completely changed everything so that you could get people who were drunk and could shout at Prospero, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, you know, but, but actually, you, you, it, it completely altered the attitude, the age of the audience, and I think if you were wandering by there, you might think, "Oh, a fiver! I, I might give that a try." And you might not like it, or you might not last the distance. Uh, but it means you—you you could take a punt on it,
2: you know. If it's-, it's a fact, though, because I—I—I I, I look at these things. If you put a play on sale or a musical in a large theatre, the first tickets to go will be the expensive ones. So there are, thank goodness, uh, people who can afford to pay a lot of money to go to the theatre and who will, uh, will and like it, but there are many others who can't afford and um, we ignore them at our peril.
0: Fantastic. Well, Frank persi is running at the Other Palace until December the 3rd. Roger, Ian, thank you so much for being on the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Thank you. Thank Pleasure.
1: You.
0: And that's the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. A huge thank you to our guests this week, Sir Ian McKellen and Roger Allen.
1: You can find all our latest reviews at standard.co.uk. That's linked below. And Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss us. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and we'll see you next Sunday.